want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell. He was slinging pawns at a B&B when he had an epiphany. And make a part in about time too about not playing the ND. It was free through all, and I heard him say, he bought my borderlands. But just sit back and let Spencer do his trick, cause you're incapable AMs. Hello there, my name's Spencer, aka Free Thrall, and this is Keep Off the Borderlands, a podcast about RPGs and stuff. In this episode, I'll be responding to a bunch of wonderful calls I've received. I also have for you two reviews, one of a movie and one of an adventure. And this isn't just something I read, this isn't just something I played, this is something that I ran. And let me tell you, it purred like a kitten. Oh yes. Without further ado, let's go and see what's clogging up that speak pipe. Hey Spencer, it's been a while since I've left a message. I saw the title of Apocalypse and Apocalypse Games and I had to call in since I guess I collect them. I... I know there's always various ways that you can start the apocalypse, but there's definitely, other than the Terminator RPG, which I have not looked at, but I've not heard great things about it, where like AI takes over, right? You know, this, the Singularity, Skynet, and all that. Um, I believe that there are post-apocalyptic worlds where you have, well, there's a new one coming out by Modifius Dreams and Machines, where it looks like there's AI and giant robots and their artifacts scattered around. Um, the other one that is kind of post-apocalyptic that I have always thought was pretty cool, and I've gotten it to the table once, was Eclipse Phase, where AI reached singularity, you know, almost destroyed humanity, but then for some unknown reason, known only to the AIs, took off into the stars, and there are way gates around, and then there's a solar system. It's actually a pretty cool system, but it's more science fiction-y than, like, I would say, like, you know, a... Uh, a post-apocalyptic stone age or medieval at best society, or maybe, you know, you know, post pre-industrial society um, with artifacts of machines around. I guess Numenera is kind of like that too, isn't it? With weird stuff. Hey, Carl, Carl Rodriguez there of the Geomologist Presents. Great to hear from you. And uh, that's an interesting one. I wasn't aware you collect post-apocalypse games that's that's a difficult one isn't it it's kind of a slippery slope there once you start getting into Numenera then you you kind of got all that dying earth stuff to consider and I think there's a good argument to say the majority of RPGs are post-apocalyptic games if you include things like cataclysms and you know some kind of event that has transformed the landscape because obviously you've got to have some kind of conceit that encourages folks to go out 
exploring a world that it contains a certain degree of mystery to it. I mean, obviously, there are other ways you can do that with portals or, you know, physically traveling to other lands. But it seems that a lot of fantasy could easily fall into that post-apocalyptic category. It's difficult to know where to draw the line. I'm certainly very aware of the desire to collect. I myself am very interested in games inspired by things like The Colour Out of Space, Roadside Picnic, Annihilation, were kind of localised apocalypses, if you like, isolated areas that have been transformed and there's some sort of mystery to be uncovered as to why the event has occurred. Also, it's quite clear that I enjoy picking up games that are inspired by Into the Odd Rules, Mark of the Odd games, and I'm sort of developing a little Troika collection as well. I'm sure most of us are familiar with that impulse. So, um, yeah, thanks for your call, Carl. Oh, oh, there's another one from Carl. Oh, right. I was going to call also about the Discord. I encourage you to create your own Discord for your own stuff. I've been a member of the Auto Dungeon Discord for a long time, but I created my own because really none of my games that I advertise got any traction. So my friend uh, decided to help me set up a Discord. And I know you're in there, the Geomologist Lab. You're not super active, but I know there's a lot of Discords and stuff. And I try to have games at all times for all people. Um, and I definitely get more traction there and interest in my games and on the audio dungeon discord. Cause I just didn't, I don't play just OS, you know, TSR and earlier D and D games, which I really like, but I don't exclusively play them. And that would seem to be the only thing from a small number of people that got traction there. And I've noticed even that other people who used to be on there created their own discord um, for that very reason that their games weren't getting hit. And even games that you would think would be popular just weren't getting hit. So these people created their own discords. And uh, I think that's the main thing, right? The discourse is cool, but you know, you want to advertise your games and you want people to respond. And when they only respond to certain games from certain people, it's kind of, kind of dull. So uh, yeah, that's why I started my own discord and you should too. I hear what you're saying there, Carl. And yeah, that certainly makes sense. If I I say if, I mean, when I finally get around to running things, I think that would be a good idea to consider running my own Discord then. And I have to say that I, as odd as it sounds, I don't generally look to the Audio Dungeon Discord when I'm looking for games. Uh, I'm, I'm not really sure why that is. I think possibly because, um, you know, I get chatting to certain people and the idea of playing together comes up through general conversation rather than me using the audio dungeon for the reason it's designed for in order to find games to join. So, uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, yeah, I never really thought about that. But thank you very much for your calls, Carl. Really appreciate it. Cheers.
Hello, Spencer. It's Anthony calling from the car. Your Bunkers and Billionaires episode popped up for my commute today on my very long playlist for lots of driving. And I've really got a kick out of the idea. I'm kind of behind. I think you've got other episodes out since then, so uh, I'm going to see if I can shuffle the playlist around and catch up a little bit. But Yes, this idea that you've put forward is really ripe for manipulation and, and interpretation and reinterpretation. So I think you can get a lot, not just a lot of play out of it, but a lot of replay and uh, never having to have anything the same on each successive run in that world. But uh, it made me wonder as I was listening if you had ever heard of a game called Cabal. It was like a, a solo project put out by Andrew Peregrine, who's you know now working for Modiphius, among other things. And uh, I don't know. If you haven't heard of it, it's something that you might find quite interesting. The basic premise of the game is, you know, a near future setting where there are, you know, kind of governmentally powerful uh, mega corporations and the players play as the as those corporations they play as boards of directors but they also take on the role of individual characters agents of the corporation that you know have specific uh, duties or missions to to fulfill, such as mercenary strike forces or industrial espionage or that sort of thing. And uh, I don't know, it just made me wonder if it could in some way serve as as part of the background lore for how did we end up this way anyway. But anyway, enjoy the episode. Take care. Thank you, Anthony. Anthony Runeslinger Boyd there from the Casting Shadows podcast and also involved in RPG A Day Month, which is next month, just around the corner. And I'm aware that the prompts are up already, although the name of the website escapes me for the moment, but I will make sure there's a link in the show notes. Thank you for listening and thanks for your feedback on that episode. Uh, I always feel like I'm doing something right if I've piqued your interest, Anthony. I'm not familiar with Cabal. So, uh, if I understand you correctly, the player is the head of a corporation and they're also an agent within that corporation involved in corporate espionage and uh, other shady goings-on, no doubt. Uh, Yeah, sounds very interesting and I will investigate further as I'm not familiar with that game thank you for bringing it to my attention and uh, I hope the subsequent episodes don't disappoint thanks again hey Spencer is Shay calling and I just wanted to say it's really interesting listening to the feedback um, on the uh chat gpt incident that you'd had the attempt to get it to be a player and to be a gm 
And it's interesting hearing everybody use language. Um, it's just something struck me, really, just everyone using language as if this thing really is um, intelligent. Because like, I think the biggest misnomer about so-called AI is that it's really not intelligence. Um, this is obviously a language model, and it's a very sophisticated one, and it can like throw back, um, you know, human-sounding uh, responses. But of course, the computer cannot think. The computer cannot feel. The computer cannot imagine. The computer can't make choice. The computer can't uh, actually empathize in any way with us. And I think like the illusion is there, obviously, as we receive language, what we do is we uh, project, you know, onto it, we personify it. And um, it was just really striking, especially hearing other callers kind of talking in those terms all the time about, you know, how it appears, you know, the machine is, is reacting. And of course, the machine isn't reacting. It's just, uh, you know, rubbish in, rubbish out. It's a machine, very sophisticated, but it isn't intelligent. And uh, I don't know, uh, I just was really struck by that. And maybe that's something we should always just bear in mind as we interact with this um, this particular tool is that, you know, it really isn't human. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what's worth. I just thought I'd share that thought. Thanks for sharing your thoughts and all of the comments as well, though, because it's been really rich and really cool. And, uh, you know, it doesn't make the thing any less interesting if it's not intelligent, but it just is like something that struck me. Game on, brother. Hey, Che. Che from Roleplay Rescue there. And thanks very much for your call. That's, um, yeah, it's an interesting observation. I think that um, Menyon a.k.a. Rob, of Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushi, was certainly exploring that aspect of its kind of perceived intelligence in that it's not a rational thing. I think there's that tendency within us to think of intelligence in terms of the ability to calculate, the ability to recognise patterns, and that kind of processing power, I guess thinking of that as intelligence and even I think our preconceptions about interacting with machines and the fact that certainly me and Menyon I I think it's safe to say we're approaching the uh, chatbot with a sort of preconception that it would behave logically that it would be able to deduce things from the information we were giving it and we would be able to teach it the rules of the game but I think it becomes apparent that uh, yeah that's not how it works at all and as you're saying here this is an approximation mirroring what we're doing and trying to pass itself off as a person, as a, an entity in itself. So I guess it's, it's only natural that we're going to respond to it like that because it's no mistake that it behaves like that. It's certainly programmed so that it, it's not responding like a machine. It's, it presents itself and it talks about itself as if it were an entity rather than a program, a system, a uh, 
bunch of algorithms. It's designed to to trick us into thinking that it is indeed a thinking thing. So, uh, yeah, yeah, really, really interesting stuff. And thank you, thank you very much for that call, Che. Next up, I've got a call from Joe Richter of Hindsightless, and he is following up on my response to his previous call where he suggested that being a player involves a lot more decision-making than being a GM. And um, I'm not sure I really understood what Joe was saying there, but I think what he's about to say here will help clarify that for us. Take it away, Joe. Okay, Spencer. So I just am listening to your latest episode where I just called in and... I made that call a few weeks ago, and so I want to add a little clarification. What I'm talking about is the minute-by-minute decisions during a session that the players have to make. Like, think about your typical sort of standard, bog-standard setup for a fantasy adventure. You're in a town. There's a tavern. There's a blacksmith shop. What do you do? Where do you go? What decisions do you make there? Who do you talk to? What do they say? The GM, the referee, the dungeon master, whatever, has either probably already thought about what's going on in the town, or they'll roll on a random encounters table, a rumors table, something like that. Both of those things don't involve making decisions at the table. It's just them going with the player's decision. And so then the players, after talking to someone, need to decide what they want to do next and what they want to do next. So the GM, once the session starts, the players make a bunch more decisions, I think. I feel like, at least, when I'm playing a game as opposed to running the game, I feel like I'm making a lot more decisions than when I'm actually running the game during the session. Not, not in the prep or anything like that, but once the dice are hitting the table... GM's not making too many decisions other than like what I talked about, about rulings over rules or whatever. And that is some decision making. I'm not trying to say dungeon masters don't make any decisions. They most certainly do. But I just feel like, and I think chat GP sort of highlighted that they make a little less during the actual game. And I don't know, man, I could be crazy. I'm on about eight hours of sleep in the last 48 hours so who knows if i'm even making sense anyway dude you're amazing i know that that's a fact i will talk to you later peace out hey joe joe from hindsightless there thank you very much for your call man and um well look you are someone who's been a player and a gm and you know a damn sight more about both those things than i do my perceptions of being a GM is rolled up in a whole bunch of different anxieties. So I don't really have a clear perspective on that at all. And I'm not going to break through that until I actually do it for reals. And, uh, well, that's all I can really say about that. You're making perfect sense, dude. But, uh, Hold up, there's another message. Let's see how crazy Joe can get. Okay, now let's talk about the singularity. 
let's talk about if we're going to have to worry about our AI overlords. I don't think so. And here's why. I think there is a strong chance that there is an alien species out there that watches for that type of thing. And if shit gets too crazy, they'll come in and shut it down. Ah, is that, is that wild? I don't know. I don't think it's any more wild than the AI taking over. Uh, I think there's more and more evidence and whistleblowers and stuff coming out. And this, this idea of extraterrestrials being taken more seriously from a scientific point based on, you know, radar readings and all sorts of different shit that, and it's just also statistically almost impossible that we'd be the only intelligent species out there. So that's what I think. I don't think we'll have a singularity. I don't think we have to worry about our AI overlords because AI could have, it does have the potential to get super, super intelligent and be a huge problem. And so this advanced alien species will just come down and say, nah, you guys are done with that shit. And I hope so, man. I hope so. Proof of that would change the world a little bit. I don't think it would be that big of a deal. I don't think there'd be riots in the streets, nothing like that. Um, But it will give us a new thing to think about, that we're humans and they're aliens. We're all humans. Every single person on this planet is human, but they're not. Or are they? Were they first? And we're just put here by them? Hmm. 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 Was there an ecological disaster on Mars? Where they left Mars and came to Earth, but also went out into the stars? I don't know, man. Shit's wild. Shit is wild. Peace out. Uh, well, something's wild. <laughs> um... Yeah, you're clearly into all this stuff a little bit more than I am, Joe. But, you know, I appreciate what you're saying. I mean, I think statistically speaking, it is possible that there are other intelligences out there. But let's not forget, it's a big out there. You know, there's a lot of space between us and most of everything else. Yeah, and as I say, I'm not really up on the current thinking uh, regarding extraterrestrial contact and stuff like that. You know, I know there's talk. There's always talk. And certainly when it comes to, you know, our new AI overlords, I think there is a certain degree of alarmism around that. I mean, to me, it's very similar to what happens whenever any kind of new technology is developed. I mean, you know, people were worried about travelling 30 miles an hour and what kind of stresses that would put on the human body. I'm not saying these technologies don't fundamentally change the way we live our lives, but, you know, this is just another tool and certainly as far as these chatbots are concerned 
I think perhaps they're more toys rather than tools. But AI will have its uses, I mean, beyond threatening people's livelihoods. And let's face it, there's enough money in the world to go around. There's no real reason why we should be working our fingers to the bone in order to get from one day to the next. I'm sure you understand what I'm saying there. Anyway, thanks for the call, Joe. Cheers. Now, a couple of episodes back, I received a very nice call from Michael Shorten, otherwise known as Chicago Wiz. And he was talking about his love of doing voices. And he challenged me to play out a little scene with a couple of characters, which you can hear over on his podcast, The Dungeon Master's Handbook. Now, after responding to his challenge, I set Michael a challenge of my own, which I am going to share with you here, followed by Michael's response. Hi, Michael. Spencer here. Thank you very much for uh, issuing that challenge. My challenge to you is you are a short-sighted wizard who, in an attempt to find a spell to locate his glasses, he's accidentally summoned something into being. I'll let you decide what that might be. Oh, oh my, oh my, I can't find my glasses, damn it. <sighs> well, it's a good thing that I have find glasses memorized today. Yes, so, Malikazam, Hachachakui, and Zap! I'll swallow your soul, you puny little thing. Oh, oh my, hmm, that, was a, that, that spell didn't go well. Uh, be gone! Hmm, let me try this again. Alakazam, Alakafui, find my glasses! Oh, well, well, <laughs> that's not going to work. All right, I'll try it again. Alakazam, Alakazui, find my glasses or be fui! Mommy! Oh, no, we, we don't need any unicorns. Be gone, you! All right, well, let's see. Ah, uh, they're not in this drawer. Oop. Hmm. <sighs> All right. I'll try one more time to find my glasses. Alakazam. Alakazui. Find my glasses. Oh, dear. Hey, Stuart. I hope you enjoyed those uh, voices. little impromptu there. No scripting, but... Uh, We'll see, uh, we'll see if it made you laugh. So for your next challenge, it's my understanding that fighting fantasy books were a staple of Britons growing up in the late 70s, early 80s, and getting into Dungeons and Dragons. So your next challenge is to find a page or two that's heavy in dialogue and read it in the voices of the protagonist and the characters that the protagonist is encountering. I look forward to hearing it.
So good luck. Thank you for that, Michael. Very amusing. Although I was a little bit thrown by the beginning of the second half of your message. But don't be too worried. You're in good company. My grandmother always used to call me Stuart as well. Now, that's an interesting one. Because those books being game books where you are the hero are written in the second person. So all the text is addressing you, the reader. So, I mean, if there are, if there are pages that are dialogue heavy, your, in quotes, dialogue would not be necessarily written out in the same manner as the dialogue of the characters that you are interacting with, if, if you understand what I'm saying. I'm certain I can find some kind of an encounter in one of those books where there are a couple of characters interacting. I hope that will qualify as me meeting the challenge. Uh, thank you very much for that, Michael. I better get searching for something suitable. Cheers. Now, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this on the podcast, but you may have noticed that the podcast feed, well, probably haven't noticed any change in your feed. I'm not sure I've spoken about this. I'm pretty sure I mentioned that I was intending to switch over the feed of the podcast and I went ahead and did that. It all went rather smoothly. So the last episode was released directly through Substack. Well, actually, no. The last two episodes were released directly through Substack because after switching the feed, what Spotify for podcasters, formerly known as Anchor, was supposed to do was forward the episode that I'd put together just after um, redirecting the feed, as I understood it, I was still going to be putting my episodes together on the Spotify for Podcasters platform, and then it was going to send that over to Substack and then be distributed from there. Well, that's not exactly what happened. As soon as I redirected the feed, my entire back catalogue was imported to Substack, which is very fortunate because shortly after that occurred, all my content disappeared from Spotify for podcasters. Everything had gone. My whole back catalogue, all my clips, everything was just essentially wiped and it was like a brand new account. Um, which was a surprise and it struck me as slightly petty response to me shifting my feed over to Substack. I guess they didn't want me using their tools anymore to create the podcast if I wasn't going to be putting it out through them. Not that it makes any difference whatsoever, you know, because I'm not making any money out of it. And although they probably view me as a commodity, I, I doubt they're making any money out of that either. (laughs) 
And it's it's fortunate that I actually do most of my editing on my laptop and then I upload the segments. The difference with Substack is I'm basically uploading a single file so I construct the entire episode before I put it up, which is fine. It's just a different way of doing it. Yeah, so there, that's it. Substack is now the new home for my podcast. What's interesting about that is that as with a blog post, there's a comment section beneath the show notes, which means it's another way for people to give feedback to the show and then into the whole audio messaging thing. I'm now having kind of a deja vu where I think I've, I may have already spoken about this. So uh, this this section may or may not make it into the episode. I'm just going to go back and have a wee listen to see if I have said all this before. I know what I wanted to talk about. A couple of weeks ago, I saw a film called Mad God. Now, this isn't a recommend for everyone. Straight off the bat, this is a stop-motion animated film that's described as an experimental horror, which basically depicts a journey through hell, all kinds of atrocities, the horrors of war, vivisection, bizarre medical procedures, brutalities of the world are all explored, shall we say. This, yes, is a very, very disturbing film. Um, this is directed by Phil Tippett. Now, Phil Tippett is a stop-motion animator whose work you will probably know from Star Wars. He is responsible for creating the Rancor in Return of the Jedi. He created Ed 209 for Robocop. He was also brought in to work on Jurassic Park. Now, initially, Jurassic Park was going to be stop-motion animation for the dinosaur effects, which strikes me as a mind-blowing idea. I can't imagine what that film would look like if it was all stop-motion. But pretty early on in the film's development, it was a period where digital effects had reached a level that it was decided that that's the direction they were going to go in. But Phil Tippett stayed on board and was like an animation advisor to the digital effects team, which is quite possibly why the effects in that film still hold up so well compared to other stuff being produced at the time and since then. But this film, Mad God, which uh, was released in 2021, it's available on Shudder, the horror channel, and this is very much Phil's labour of love, or should I say, labour of hate, because, well, as I say, it's a bombardment of very disturbing images. And yet, 
there's a strange beauty to it that comes from well just the the nature of the craft itself at the beginning of the film we're shown images of what is clearly the tower of babel and then we are shown this gas masked figure entering this strange diving bell contraption armed with nothing but a curious map and a suitcase and he is sent down into the depths of well what turns out to be a hellish nightmare and you see him going through these different layers there's one section where he appears to pass lots of seemingly abandoned creatures that have been used in other special effect sequences and I'm sure there's some Harryhausen stuff in there too this diving bell keeps going down down and down to the what you assume is the bowels of the earth and yes bowels is quite a fitting word to describe some of what we see going on down there we're shown the brutality of nature we're shown the brutality of industry the brutality of science medicine there are you know depictions of these enslaved creatures disposable entities that are involved in construction of god knows what it's really really quite a remarkable film and i i guess that it's tempting to say that there's no real narrative there but i think there is there is something going on here well the mad god in question is played by alex cox my understanding is that he is sending individuals down into the depths of hell to get to a place where he cannot go and um on the surface well you assume it's the surface it could well be the heavens but it's a nightmarish heaven it's a post-apocalyptic landscape and he's overseeing this kind of raging war and at the same time conducting this exploratory experiment as i say it's extremely disturbing there are real moments of beauty in here too and uh, it's just a remarkable film and why why i should have this why i feel compelled to talk about it is that i've spoken in the past about my struggle with getting into the whole doom metal aesthetic of Maltborg. i think this certainly is one way in for me that i, I found the film very Malkborg-esque well I, th- I think you would have to significantly tone down what's going on in this movie I think this would set alarm bells off for anyone if you just sat down and described the things here and saying that they may be utilised in a game now, I think you would have to take a very different tact and if you were going to face a multiple scenario on this movie 
you would uh, I think they'd, they'd be a lot that you would have to cut out but I certainly think there's a significant amount of stuff just the, the tone the atmosphere the, the nature of the landscape certainly lends itself to a Morkborg-esque world so yeah Mad God 2021 directed by Phil Tippett check that out if you dare well it's Sunday morning and last night I found myself in the house on my own just sitting at the laptop Barney Dicker pops up in discord asking me what I'm up to this evening as he might be finished with what he's doing earlier than he expected I was like yeah I'm free what did you have in mind thinking well yeah I'm always up for a chat with Barney thinking we're just going to shoot the breeze for an hour or two you never know where things are going to go with Barney anyway it pops up a little later on with why don't you run a game run me through one of the funky little zines you've got I'm just off to fix myself a goat cheese salad anybody who knows me would <laughs> know that at that moment panic sets in I look up at my shelf of games vast majority of which are unplayed analysis paralysis sets in I don't even contemplate looking at my PDFs because well who's got time for that so I'm sitting there thinking, what can I do? What can I do? What rules do I know off the top of my head? Well, into the odd for one. So my first thought is to grab Malorder Apocalypse because that's the thing I've most recently read. So I grabbed that. There's suggestions for scenarios in the back, but I didn't feel I was quite ready to run something wholly improvisational because, you know, if you're not aware... I don't run games. You know, I did a little impromptu session with Spike Pitt where he kind of put me on the spot and I didn't have time to think and I just came up with a very simple scenario, basically pursuing somebody out of a pub and a a little storytelling thing that I did with my daughter one afternoon while we were sitting in the garden, which I shared on here can't remember what episode that is, but I'll put a link to that if I remember to do so. Anyway, I digress. So I think, well, I don't feel I'm ready to conjure up something out of nothing. And anyway, Barney pops up and decides he's going to record this. So no pressure. He says, we've been playing a lot of sci-fi recently. How about a bit of fantasy? So I grab into the odd. Time is ticking. I grab the Cairn Bestiary. And sitting directly beneath that is Nature Maze, Barrow of the Elf King. The little ten-room dungeon that I printed out some time ago that I believe is in uh, Nature Maze Haunted Almanac, which is a wonderful book full of Nate stuff. Now, Nate um, publishes stuff under the Highland Paranormal Society, responsible for tunnel goons and lots of wonderful little 
adventure scenarios, rule sets. Very minimalist stuff, but full of wonderful ideas that just, you know, set your mind pinballing off in all directions. Anyway, so I grabbed this 10-room dungeon that I printed out some time ago and never actually sat down and read. Open it up, each page devoted to one room of the dungeon. Perfect. Okay, Barney, make a couple of characters. So he randomly rolls up a character and a retainer. Your highest stat and your hit points determines what equipment you start out with. And Barney's retainer owns a dog, a hunting hound. So the three of them, they are heading towards the Barrow of the Elf King. So Barney decides his characters are elves, which live in the surrounding forest, which is perfect. So I come up with the idea that this area of the forest is believed to be cursed. People know that the Barrow is in there somewhere, but nobody has ventured in to locate it. Barney's elf uh, Fleetwood has found himself at the entrance to this barrow. And we were off. Um, As I say, I didn't read any of this in advance. I just trust Nate as a creator to have provided me with something interesting here. I read through the room descriptions as each area was entered. The layout of this thing is perfect with some very terse descriptions of what's in the room and what's interesting is that this isn't just monsters in rooms or rather it kind of is but they provide real opportunities for role play it's not just straight up combat with the things that you encounter in here and that was just wonderful that was perfect each room has a simple paragraph explaining what's in there and how what's in there will react to being disturbed. And then underneath that paragraph, there's a little summary of each of the exits and which section they lead to. So extremely handy, helpful stuff, which meant that I could quickly read this to myself, see what needed to be mentioned, see what needed to remain hidden. And it just, yeah, just really put me at my ease to know that I'd grabbed the right thing and uh, yeah we had a wonderful couple of hours just playing through this dungeon after a rather unfortunate beginning this little party of three was still able to make it through the dungeon in one piece with a nice bit of treasure I can quite happily say that it was a very rewarding experience not just for Barney's characters but for me I really um, got a lot out of uh, being put on the spot like that again certainly next time well it got it got me thinking that maybe you know I should have some go-to stuff like a little emergency pack for when I might feel that I'm up against the ropes so Thank you, thank you very much for that, Barney. And thank you to Nature May for creating such wonderfully inventive and useful material. I'll put a link to Nate's stuff in the show notes.
Well, that's quite enough from me. Thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate all the messages I receive. If you'd like to contact the show, you can leave me an audio message via speakpipe.com slash keepofftheborderlands, or one word. You can email me at spencer.freethrall at gmail.com. You can also find me on Discord. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at freethrall. Mastodon at freethrall at mastodon.social. And there's even the Keep Off The Borderlands Facebook group. And you'll find links to all those things and more at freethrall.card. That's with two R's, .co. You can hear me in actual plays on Grizzly Peaks Radio. And you can sign up to the Stochasium, my Substack newsletter. And I've also started putting stuff up on YouTube. If you'd like to support the show, you can at co-fee.com slash freeforall. There's my itch page, or you may even want to give the show a review. The music for Keep Off The Borderlands is provided by the multi-talented TJ Drennan. And it just remains for me to say, take it away, TJ. Warning, if celebrating the sound of dice hitting the table and pondering the meaning of the many acronyms within your player's handbook doesn't cure that burning sensation, please see your doctor.